Hi, and welcome back to Trying Again, a story of miscarriage. I'm Rachel Smith, and this is an episode that, to be honest, is a bit of an obsession of mine. I approached this topic with Professor Quemby from the Thomas National Centre for Miscarriage Research. I think the problem's been that people think, oh, well, it was a miscarriage, so, so, they, so you should just get over it. And they don't realise that you're actually uh, grieving for the lost pregnancy. And I think it's terribly important what words you use. So, you know, even the word miscarriage is not brilliant. You have lost a wanted baby or a potential baby. Or how, or how do you use the language that encapsulates what you've experienced? Because as soon as you start minimizing it, then it makes it worse. So there's lots of medical terms that we have tried to desperately get rid of, which I think makes uh, makes the grief worse. You know that in, in the medical literature, they call it spontaneous abortion, yeah. which we've, we've had a massive campaign to get rid of that because that makes it even worse. But there's all sorts of weird terms like an embryonic embryo and that the, the scanners use and, and products of conception. There's all these very harsh medical terms where the doctors use, I think it's to help them deal with it. But it's very unfortunate when the patients hear these terms. So I think we've got to start one of the things we need to work on and it's very very difficult and it's a very thorny issue especially working internationally and these words have to be translated which is where where a lot of the problems come but i think it's really important we have some sort of more emotional terminology than miscarriage so that people then would know what to say with you because if you said i've lost a baby i think people would be much more you know understanding and with jenny ag from the uterus monologues i obviously knew what a miscarriage was um in the way I think lots of people do you know it's a word people know what I don't think they know unless it happens to them is that actually it has that kind of grief impact that yeah although you might not have been very far along that doesn't actually change how you feel about the pregnancy or the child that you thought you were going to have and I just that it was never something that had been spelled out to me or that I'd thought about before I think people do just think, oh, but everything's fine. Why aren't you fine? Like, why? What's they? They can't kind of understand those like mental barriers for you. I think it's one that's come up with pretty much everyone I've spoken to so far. This is an episode about the taboo surrounding miscarriage and why there even needs to be one. What is really going on here? It baffles me, really. But then I did feel the pressure of the taboo. I kept a lot about how I felt about my miscarriages secret for a very long time. I saw there was a need to share and open up and I wrote a blog and I published it but I couldn't put my name to it at the time and it's published out there anonymously. It took me over a year to publish this podcast, all because I wanted to make sure that I was okay making this, that I felt okay making this. And to be honest with you, I'm still not 100% there with that feeling. It's not as easy for me to share all this with you as you may think. Knowing what I know now, I'm pleased I waited. The taboo is real. It's odd, but it's real. For me, it makes me feel less of a woman and I don't know how to navigate that or how I fit into society. Ruth Bender-Atik is the National Director of the Miscarriage Association. Something she said during our chat summed it up for me. Gosh, some of the things that people say to you when you miscarry anyway, like, well, you know, I know somebody who has 17 miscarriages, so at least you've got a child already and, you know, at least you've only had one. And you think, well, do you know, that really doesn't make me feel much better. <laughs> That's, that happens a lot with me. <laughs> the advice that, that people give, you can't really blame them, though, because it's, it's a strange situation, isn't it? Because they don't really know and you, then you don't want them to know. So you 
yeah it's kind of good the ignorance in some respects issue about about what people say is is a big big issue at at any time you know i i think genuinely most people don't want to say the wrong thing and they don't want to be disrespectful but but sometimes they just think you know in the grand scheme of things a miscarriage it's just a bunch of cells and generally speaking when you get a positive pregnancy test you know people don't say to you oh i'm really glad to hear about your bunch of cells when will it turn into a person you know they say when's the baby due mm. and people think baby and then when you miscarry all of a sudden they kind of backtrack and i think that's because they want to make you feel better i think we can accept that there's no easy way through miscarriage and baby loss the community surrounding it provides that light in the darkness. I think that's why there's a candle, a symbol of hope for the Baby Loss Awareness Week. What is sad is that it is still a taboo in this day and age. Take a moment now to really think to yourself, what is the taboo surrounding miscarriage? Is it one thing? Is it historic? Is it our society? Is it a man's world and a woman's issue? Should I just shut up and put up? I really don't have any answers, but I will try and explore it a little, taking the taboo surrounding this like an onion and seeing what layers I can take off. Starting with grief, or maybe hidden grief. I felt guilty for grieving and explaining how I felt about it all. Almost like the 12 weeks isn't really happening, it doesn't really count, and so I should somehow be getting over it easier. Which led me to think about where all this comes from. And does losing a baby later in pregnancy make it somehow more acceptable in society? Post-24 weeks, baby loss is no longer classed as a miscarriage, it's classed as a stillborn. For the most part, women are admitted into hospital. They give birth, have funerals, and are also entitled to maternity leave. But does all that make it more acceptable in society? Does it really break this taboo surrounding hidden grief? This line of thought led me to Alison Ingleby, a writer and host of the Footprints on Our Hearts podcast. In her podcast, Alison shares her daughter Sky's story and talks with parents who've experienced stillbirth, miscarriage and infant death. Sky died at 26 weeks. In episode 18 of her podcast, Alison shares her story and reads a letter to her younger self on reflection of her grief. Alison has kindly allowed me to share this letter with you. I see you, bereaved mother. I see you lying there, shell-socked and numb, having just given birth to your dead baby. I see you struggling to breathe, struggling to feel, struggling to know what life is going to be like. Let me tell you this straight up. The next year will be the hardest of your life. You will shed more tears than you thought possible. You will hit the lowest point of your life and find yourself in the deepest, darkest, blackest hole. There will be times you wonder if you can survive this. There will be times you wonder if you want to survive this. You will feel rage, a deep, burning, uncontrollable anger at the world, at fate, at yourself. You will feel envy, jealousy, despair and fear. You will hurt inside, a physical pain, and you will curl up and embrace it while begging for it to go away. There will be times you lie on the sofa, hugging your daughter's ashes, trying to pretend that they are a living, breathing baby. There will be times you lie on the floor, unable to get up as the weight in your chest drags you down. So what hope can I offer? 
just this. There is no end to the darkness, but slowly light will come back into your life. You will learn to breathe again. You will learn to live again. You will learn to hope again. They say that motherhood changes you, and it does, in ways you could never imagine. The hardship and pain you suffer will cause you to look inside yourself and take the first step on a long journey of discovery. You will learn so much about yourself in this first year, your fears, your dreams, your strengths, your weaknesses. You are a phoenix and you will rise from the ashes of life that surround you. This rising will take longer than a day, a week, a month. There won't be a time when you suddenly turn around and think, I am whole again. A small part of you will always feel incomplete. But you will learn to embrace that void inside you for what it is, the child you hold in your heart. And even though the grief may crash over you like a wave pounding the sand, driving you to your knees, you'll be ready for it and embrace it because it is not something bad to be choked back or pushed down, but a manifestation of a wild, everlasting, beautiful love. A love that will last as long as you live. After death comes new life. Out of pain and heartbreak comes strength. Strength does not lie in being stoic. It is not putting on a brave face and pretending to the world that everything is okay while deep inside you battle to keep down the feelings that swirl in your belly and claw at your throat. Strength is accepting these feelings seeking to understand them and the deeper feelings that lie beneath them, then learning to let go of them. One year on, I am still on this road of discovery. Some days are harder than others. I am not strong yet, but I am stronger. It is still hard for me to think of her and be happy rather than sad. But that's okay. Grief is love, and I choose love over emptiness. So, when the days are at their darkest, cling to hope. You will survive. You will learn to live again. And you will always be a mother. I thought her letter was beautiful and I caught up with Alison online. She had a little surprise for me. So I'm currently seven and a bit months <gasps> Congratulations. with my rainbow, pregnant with my rainbow which I haven't, <laughs> thank you, uh, which I was literally, I, I'm actually about to put something on Instagram, I think today, because I've just been putting off and putting off and putting off announcing it. By the time this goes out, hopefully, hopefully, baby will be here. <laughs> so this is lovely news. <laughs> Congratulations, <laughs> oh, it's really you. lovely. Um, how have you felt with it all then since? I, I knew after we lost Sky, I knew that I needed to, to wait a bit like I know some some people kind of go and and kind of have that empty arm syndrome and I had that but I I didn't want to feel that straight away I wanted to grieve for my daughter and have a bit of space to come to terms with that and I struggled a bit with my mental health following Sky's death um and certainly I wanted to I knew that um being pregnant again would be a massively anxious time. So I knew that I needed to kind of sort out my mental health and get into the best place possible before um, before starting to try again. 
the conversation moved on to the taboo surrounding hidden grief. I think generally we're not very good at talking about grief and death as as a society. Um, and I think baby loss is a very, sort of even within that, that banner, baby loss is a very sensitive subject. So I think if, you know, if your husband or wife dies or, you know, a, a relative dies, you can still talk about that person or friends can talk about that person to you because they know something about them. They've had a life. They've been, you know, they can talk about it in different ways. And, you know, you're expected to grieve in that situation. Whereas I think with baby loss, there's two aspects to it. There's, there's firstly, no one else has really known this baby apart from you, you know, unless obviously if your baby dies after birth and other people will have met them and, you know, that might be a slightly different situation, but, but still they haven't had that life. There isn't that kind of other stuff to talk about around this person. There is just their death effectively. And I think the, the sort of link to that is, perhaps an idea that some people have that yes you grieve but then you move on from it because you haven't I guess had as long to develop that relationship with with your baby um and then I think I think the other thing I think people just don't know what to say and I think they're so afraid of hurting you a lot of the time that they just don't say anything at all for fear of saying the wrong thing um from my experience people didn't really talk to me about sky um i mean we got you know we got lots of kind of messages from friends and stuff in the aftermath very kind messages saying you know how sorry they were and there's anything they can do let us let them know and uh, and that kind of thing but in terms of you know when we would meet up with people no one would bring it up in conversation for example um you know no one would ask about her or talk about her at all and i i do wonder if in terms of if you're talking about i guess early miscarriage because obviously you know miscarriage covers a whole spectrum and you know that could be a whole different conversation about where that line is drawn between miscarriage and sort of stillbirth i mean i i feel like a lot of the time people maybe don't talk about miscarriage because a lot of people don't you know a lot of people who've experienced a miscarriage don't talk about it so you know if no one knows you've had one then they can't really talk to you about it um, and I don't know if you know on that side of things you're kind of afraid to open up that conversation because of the response you might get I guess there's, there's maybe two side of things you know it's, it's maybe an easier topic to think of because perhaps people I think people who haven't experienced it perhaps just write it off again as a lesser as a lesser grief and a lesser thing you've sort of been through because that loss was earlier in your in your pregnancy but I guess there is a bit of a, a you know a stillbirth is is more obvious that it's happened because usually you know you have a visible bump you've usually told people so you then have to go around and tell people that actually your baby has has died um so I, I think that naturally opens the field and the number of people who know about your experience but you might be like you say you might be because women don't talk 
But then I don't think the doctors do either. And I don't think, I mean, obviously Tom is doing, you've got charities that do, but it's not open. It's not, it's common, but it's not an open conversation. It feels strange. I think it's almost assumed by kind of medical professionals and the sort of encompassing all those people who are potentially involved in your care that you kind of know what to do when it happens. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> and that you just kind of get on with it. And as you say, you know, you, you bleed for a bit and then, and then that's it. And it's only, you know, if something, if there's perhaps complications with that and, um, you know, there are, there are ongoing issues that, that then they kind of pay attention and, you know, you might have to have sort of a, a medical management or, or whatever the term is after that. But I feel like definitely that kind of emotional and mental side of things is, is kind of overlooked a bit. After 24 weeks and for stillbirth, you've, it's almost like the, 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 your employer can do stuff, the government can do stuff, you've, there's more um, grief support because it's almost acceptable. That is something that you're obviously going to grieve and there's, there's more uh, kind of acceptance of that. And then from my point of view, having an early one, I go back to work and you're just stuck, aren't you, in this place of like, you're just, you're in society, but you're not allowed to grieve. Yeah, and I do, I do agree that you know, I mean that the fact. So I I'm self-employed, but so I was eligible for sort of maternity allowance, and and that was a life save for me um, because you know I wasn't I wasn't working for for kind of months or not not to the same extent I was mm. trying to work <laughs> and failing miserably. <laughs> um, so that you know that that was a huge support and I think just going through this experience and then being expected to just carry on life as normal with no no I guess no space to grieve for that in terms of you know being given that space by your employer by society by whoever to you know go through the the kind of physical experience and also kind of mentally come to terms a bit with what's happened um and that i mean i think that would be something that would be amazing if that could be changed you know if there was um you know some element of leave allowance for pregnant associated with pregnancy loss that you know you were able to take and i i and i do wonder if that then might open up that conversation because i guess i think a lot of it comes down to shame and I think that is something that is so deeply embedded in our society and in us as women, going back, you know, generations, going back hundreds of years, even though, you know, we're hopefully in a more enlightened society, we're in a society which talks about it more, we're in a society which accepts that it happens, but even though we're we've moved on a lot in that way, I think there's still part of us as women which knows, in inverted commas, that losing our babies is a shameful thing to have happened to us. And shame is such a gosh, it's 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 one of those most deeply rooted human emotions that you shy away from, that we all shy away from naturally. 
And I, I do think that, you know, we are, we're, we're slowly battling this. We've got, you know, hundreds of thousands of years <laughs> in a hundred of, years of time this, will be fine. <laughs> this stuff, which is built into our DNA and built into how society sees us as women and, you know, what, what we think we should be in society as, you know, as a woman. Another layer that really baffles me is the language surrounding miscarriage. Nicola from Miscarriage Afterlife touched on this in our chat. It was my first post that I wrote and it says, when a baby is born, people celebrate, but when a baby dies, people pretend nothing's happened. And it's, it's the most true thing I've ever seen in my life. The word miscarriage, I hate it. I hate it. I didn't miss a bus or I didn't misplace something. That's not an appropriate word. Our chat led us to asking our Instagram followers to tell us the words that trigger after loss. Here's just some of the replies from that Instagram post, read by actors. I'm not exactly sure what words I would want someone to use. However, I think what is really unhelpful is when somebody tries to make it better and ultimately belittles the loss. I think what I really wanted after I lost my baby was for someone to really listen to me. Someone to say, tell me what happened and really mean it. Because I felt like I had to edit the story because it was horrendous. I found the more honest I've been allowed to be about my loss, the more I've been able to accept what has happened and grieve effectively. To be honest, even just the word pregnant hits me hard. Why don't you just adopt after having seven losses in a row and finding out it may be thyroid related? They say you're better off. How are you feeling? I hate when people make assumptions about how I feel. Um, it's okay. They're with your dad in heaven. As well as messages on social media, I also received an email from Jessica Brotherton. Jessica started her email telling me, I recently had a close friend suffer an early miscarriage and the way she was treated really upset me. Because of her, I posted a list of things not to say to a woman in this situation. I called Jessica to chat about this. William's box includes a, a baby blanket that a dear friend of ours had started for him. And when he, when I lost him, she just stopped making the blanket, but she gave it to me later on. And so, you know, because she knew I had that memorial box, you know, that's just an example. I think it's good. It was good for me to be able to go back and, and show that my kids did exist. My boys, just because they weren't awake on this side of the womb, doesn't mean that they weren't people who existed. Um, and so having that tangible, uh, those tangible things available to look back and say, you know, here was my child, a real person, uh, that was very helpful for me. Yeah, I can imagine. And then you've, you've got it to look through too. Um, did you do the same when you lost your, your baby at three days? Did you, did you have a similar process of grief or acceptance of it or was it or did that feel different? I had a lot of grief, but it was different because I didn't know if that child was a boy or a girl. I didn't know if that child, you know, I, I didn't have enough time to even be used to the idea of being pregnant before my pregnancy was over. So I think a lot of the grief, I mean, obviously I grieved the fact that my child was gone, but I think it was a different sort of grief because you know, it, I hadn't had time to pick out names or plan or, you know, learn the gender of that baby. So the what ifs and the unknowns were really difficult um, in that regard. And it, it, it was difficult for me to get over that too, definitely. 
And how how did you get over it? I mean, you don't really get over it ever, do you? But how did you, well, did you find a way to you know, cope? I tell people all the time that's not something you get over, you get through. I think that when people say that all wounds heal, um, that is a big fat lie. Some wounds only scab over, but they never truly heal. And for my heart, that is true in this case. But where do you feel you're at with it now then? Um, I feel like... You know, every day is different. Grief is a process that doesn't have an expiration date. So I think that, you know, not a day goes by that I don't think about my kids or think about, you know, uh, what might have been or, you know, my son would be in third grade or, you know, things of, along those lines. But um, because I have hope in Jesus, I believe that someday I will see them again in heaven. And that is what helps me you know, process all of that information and get through each day. See, that's, and that's where your faith comes in. See, that's, um, yeah. Yeah. I'm really interested in that as well as the taboo, to be honest, because, um, I think that's part of the healing process for people that can believe that. Um, you know, when you have something to, 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 I don't know, to hope still, because right. it is such a dark, sad, horrible topic, isn't it? And then when you've got, when you've got that hope that it kind it changes of, everything yeah yeah I think I mean it, it and it obviously has helped you with, with it did you have it all the way through or was it something that that you you learn as you you kind of learned you, you, you were on your process of grief no I have I was I guess born with it I've always <laughs> been faithful I've always known I've always just known that God was and that yeah I I, I just was I don't know, always, always knew that. And so I feel very comfortable in my faith by saying I bear my soul because it's already bare as far as I believe. And, um, you know, I think that without that, yeah, yeah. Without, without my hope in Jesus, I would have no hope. I would be lying to you if I said that it was easy to snap out of it. I didn't speak to a single soul for the first three weeks after my son was born, except my mom, my husband, and my two, you know, my two living children. I mean, no one else. I didn't accept a single phone call. I didn't accept visitors. Um, I just didn't do it. So, you know, I had to have that time for myself to get my perspective, be mad while I needed to be mad, and then, you know, learn to move forward, you know, pick up the pieces and, and, you know, for people that already have some living children, um, the world keeps spinning for those kids. So you have to figure out a way to pick yourself up and move forward. Um, for people that have don't have any other living children, it's I think it's different because they're still, you know, this, is it ever going to happen for me? What's this going to look like? You know, all of those things. So I think it's easier when you're in that situation not to get out of bed, not to keep moving forward. Aaron was um you lost Aaron in May 2011 had had you given yourself the time in between before trying again or was I mean was Aaron planned had you had you decided you know I'm ready to to see if I can go on the journey again or, or was it a complete surprise we we weren't necessarily actively trying but we weren't not trying so we knew that we wanted to try that again um because my pregnancy losses were so traumatic, both with Aaron and William, after the after that happened, um, the doctor said that we wouldn't 
we wouldn't be able to do that anymore. But it would be life threatening. So at that point, we we didn't pursue that any further. Oh wow! So um, so it stopped with Aaron. Yes, because the doctor um, the doctor came into the hospital room not long after you know we had lost him, and she said, and I one of the first questions I asked her at the time was can we try again and how soon? And she, in front of my husband, looked me straight in the eye and she held my hand and she said, honey, I have saved your life twice, but I cannot promise I can do it a third time. And because I had massive blood loss and hemorrhaging and and all kinds of complications with both um, when everything did happen. So she, she was really concerned that, and I think that without saying it, she was probably as concerned for my mental health as she was my physical health. Because if I'm being perfectly honest, I was a mess. How did you get from the the hope of, of having Erin to being told, actually, you're best not doing this again, full stop? Oh, I was mad. I was so mad. Mad for, well, I'm probably still mad a little. <laughs> you know, because <laughs> you be. have this hope of things that you want. I mean, we all want what we want. And mm. I wanted that next baby and I never got it so yeah I'm probably still pissed off about it I know for me I felt like that was the only thing that defined me for a while you know that was the thing that people would know about me that would be most prevalent and that's not true at all um it it is something that happens to us but it's not because of something that you've done does that make sense yeah yeah it does and that's what inspired you to write the letter then your friend when when you were because I met her in your email, you said you felt angry by the language that was being used around her. Is that? Oh, yeah. Listen, people say stupid things because they are uneducated. And the first way to help them be educated is for women like me to speak out and say, you know, don't say that. That's You think that sounds nice, but really that's not helpful at all. <laughs> <laughs> and I have had you know, after having four, I have heard just about everything that can be said to someone in this situation. So I'm pretty opinionated about, you know, if you're going to open your mouth, make sure that what is about to come out of it, you don't have to try to eat back up because it's, it's, you can really damage a relationship with somebody saying the wrong thing to them when they have just gone through something like this. Mm. So yeah, I get angry about it. I don't like to see women, I don't like to see pain compounded because of other people's ignorance. And I think that happens a lot. Would you be willing to talk, to read through the letter? Because I, I, I literally was reading it, nodding along the whole time. <laughs> I was reading through that. Yep, yep, yep. I was like, you're just going to have to come and do it yourself. Are you ready? Yes, I'm ready. All right. Since I posted about my son, I've heard from several other women privately who've lost their child. Each had a similar story and one common theme. People are uncomfortable and don't know what to say. Chances are you have or will at some point encounter a woman who suffered the loss of a child by miscarriage or stillbirth. It's unfortunately so common that one in four women will join the sisterhood of uniquely grieving mothers. To that end, I've composed a list of things not to say to a woman who has suffered this incredible loss. Each woman feels this differently and should be allowed to grieve in her own way. To prevent or belittle the grieving process can have severe and unintended consequences. There is no timeline for grief. Number one, I'm sorry. Yep, me too. How about say nothing? 
Most of I'm sorry ends up with you in tears and I don't want to comfort you. A silent hug is better than that. Number two, well, at least you have other kids. Be thankful for that. Excuse me, but all of my kids are equally loved and wanted. If you had three living children and one of them died, would you just be expected not to grieve because the others survived? Of course not. That's ridiculous. Number three, maybe it's because, enter your opinion here, age, habits, lifestyle, choices, any of those can be to blame, but maybe there is no blame. Unless you are a medical professional treating this patient, you stuff that opinion. Number four, will you try again? How could you possibly ask someone that? It is nobody's business what you choose to do with your womb. If you are not a part of making that child, please stay in your lane. Number five, well, at least you weren't that far along. Listen to me. Every child matters. Every life counts. A mother's heart knows her children. That is the most insensitive thing. Just don't. Number six, I didn't want to bother you. So you didn't call me for six months? Your real friends won't bother you. They will show up. They'll do your laundry. They'll bring you a casserole. They'll take your kids to ball practice. They'll hug your neck. They will pray for your heart. Number seven, aren't you a little old? Again, unless you're my gynecologist, you need to shut your mouth. How I choose to grow my family and at what age is absolutely none of your business. Number eight, are you still not over that? Once again, grief has no timeline. Number nine, well, maybe next time. That's awfully presumptuous. If you don't have, if you don't know that I have been told I can't try again, or you know that I have been told I can try again, you need to hush your mouth. Number 10, you should mention that because, listen, a mother's love doesn't stop at the grave. Making a mother feel uncomfortable for mourning or mentioning her child is barbaric. It's not taboo, it's life and it's loss, and it should be treated as such. Everything happens for a reason. You shouldn't have to be told all of the reasons why that's crap. Don't even think it. This is not an exhaustive list, but the most commonly heard things in my circle of friends and from my own experience. Please think before you speak. Pray for moms that suffer this and let her know that you're doing so. There's a lot that you can say that's helpful. Maybe this will help avoid some of the things that aren't. I'm not sure. One episode in one podcast will end a taboo that is complex and really a bit odd. But shining a light on it may help open up the conversation a little. And selfishly, it's helped me get some of this off my chest. If you're going through it right now, I hope you find some comfort in knowing you're not alone. You may feel like you are, but please know there's people out there ready to help and listen when you're ready. There are charities in the UK, like Tommy's, the Miscarriage Association and Sands, who are tackling the taboo surrounding miscarriage and baby loss head on, with studies, recommendations and support for women, partners, families and more recently workplaces, with a new resource hub published on the Miscarriage Association website. Things are changing. You are listening to this right now. That makes you a small part of that change. This episode was recorded by me in my spare room in my duvet den. The music is Small Bump by Ed Sheeran. Thank you to Professor Quemby from Tommy's National Centre for Miscarriage Research, Jenny Ag from the Uterus Monologues, Ruth Bender-Atik, National Director of the Miscarriage Association, Alison Ingleby from the Footprints on Our Hearts podcast, Nicola from Miscarriage Afterlife, Jessica Brotherton, those of you who replied to my Instagram post and the actors that read them. What can I do to support you? More open then, is there anything I can do? If you need some help or support, there's links on the website trying 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 again podcast.com. 
If you've liked this episode, please share it. And remember to subscribe to this podcast so that you don't miss an episode. You can wrap your fingers round.